Welcome, welcome everyone. This is your host, Michael Stone, and you are listening to We Earth Radio. I am thrilled about my guest today. Stephanie James is a dynamic presenter, author, film producer, transformational coach, and psychotherapist with 30 years in the mental health field. She's gathered wisdom from some of the most amazing minds and serving hearts on the planet and has synthesized their wisdom with her own knowledge and experience to help her audience expand their vision of themselves and ignite their purpose. She aims to bring as much love and healing to the world as possible, and you will find out she is doing that. She understands that when each person lives their greatest vision of themselves, they will illuminate the way for others to do the same. Stephanie, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Michael. It's just a joy to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, I loved your your book, Becoming Fierce, which I'll show here, and um, and we'll talk about your movie uh, a little later. But I'd like to start out talking about your roots, because always, you know, that early time with the family and what happens is often what prepares our path for life. So tell us a little bit about early years and growing up and how you became you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, it's one of my things that I, I share with my clients and I feel like one of the things that I think is important for all of us, you know, none of us get out of childhood unscathed, even if we have the most wonderful parents, you know, it seems that we get some kind of message about who we are in the world that can really affect how we perceive ourselves. And you know, Michael, for myself, I had 13 years of truly golden childhood where, you know, it was Sunday dinners at my grandmother's house and lots of cousins, aunts and uncles. Um, I was one of those little kiddos that I was a daddy's girl. So, um, and my parents were very involved. And I, I think it's important to note, you know, the, the close relationship I had with my dad was one of those ones where I was his little shadow. So if he was out mowing the lawn, I was there with my bag, helping him get all the lawn scrapings. And when he was inside working on his workbench, I would be right beside him, just nailing nails and a board just to be near him. And I even remember being, you know, six years old, I would sit on the side of the sink when he would shave in the morning and he'd put shaving cream on his face and then on mine. And I would use a little plastic toothbrush holder to shave my face as well. And, you know, I, I had these parents that were very involved in my life and really this beautiful life. And I'd never seen my parents fight, which is important, you know, and, and as you know, as the book opens, what, what ended up happening is after 13 years of this in one evening, you know, that, that really golden childhood was completely shattered and irreversibly broken. And it really erupted as my brother and I were woken up. I was 13, he was 10, and we heard the screeching tires going out of our driveway. And we look out the window in my bedroom and my mom's peeling down the driveway as my father jumps onto the hood of the car and is banging on the hood of the car for her to get out. You know, we're there in disbelief and unbeknownst to us, my father had waited till we had all gone to bed to tell my mother he was in love with another woman. And that he was leaving her. And so, Michael, my my really idyllic childhood erupted. Um, my mother, who I always say, you know, she is one of my very best friends now, at the time became very emotionally unstable. 
And, you know, she was in love with this person for 18 years. And um, very shortly after that, I had a stepmother and the relationship with my father changed dramatically. From that point on, I was no longer allowed to be with him alone, to speak to him alone. Hmm. And up until the day he passed, which was just this last December, I wasn't allowed to speak with him alone on the phone. And at 16, when I chose to stay with my mother, um, I had been visiting her and, and my dad and my stepmother pulled up and said, hey, we're going to move to Austin in three weeks. Do you want to come with us? My immediate response was no. You know, I was a junior in high school. I'd grown up with all of my friends since preschool academy when I was four. And, you know, friends are so important at that time. And so I said, I'm going to stay. And my father stopped speaking to me um, for a year at that time. And, you know, Michael, that, that was the next, the, that really was then the low point for the next 15 years, I think is what I went through this, you know, self-loathing and trying to figure it out. The message that I held on to was that somehow I wasn't lovable. And so I tried to do everything I could to, you know, to somehow prove that, to earn his love, to be acceptable. And so, you know, it's like, oh, if I just look good enough, if I just get good enough grades, if, you know, I have the right husband, the right house, then, you know, I can somehow earn this love. And it wasn't until in my early thirties, and, and you know, this from, from watching the film, you know, I share the story of really the turning point in my life was being at a healing school in San Francisco where Dr. Jaffe had shaken my hand at the beginning of the event when, you know, we were all just walking in and it was one of those things where he holds your hand for a little too long. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's looking into my soul, which he actually was. Um, as he was up presenting about halfway through, he stops and he says, hey, you in the blue coat, I have a message for you. And I'm looking around at everyone. There's about 40 of us sitting in the audience. And I look down, I was like, oh, crud, I'm the one in the blue coat. And then he said, I have a message for you. And I could not hear what he said. Time after time, he, he repeated it a couple of times. I didn't hear him. The third time he repeats it, all the air conditioning units in the place go up and nobody can hear him. So people are just in hysterics. They're laughing. And he, you know, he's finally like, come up here. You have such resistance to this message, you know, come up here. And so I come and sit on these steps near the stage. And he says, my dear, what I'm trying to tell you is stop trying. Stop trying. And, and he said, you've been trying your whole life to be perfect for your father. And now you're doing it for your husband. Stop trying. And that was this point where it, it was just like one of those aha moments where I said, I can no longer, you know, prescribe to these external programs for happiness and try to earn love. This is an inside job. And so it, it was that journey and truly the awakening and learning. I've got to befriend myself first. I have to learn how to love this person and so just a deeper journey for me, it's been with the divine and being able to see myself through that, um, that's helped cultivate that loving relationship with inside myself. 
and has led to all of this. Brilliant. I love it. You know, I used to dance at that Sufi girl school. They had a weekly dance. I used to come over from Marin and go to that. So I remember, I remember that. Before I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been, yeah, it's been a long time ago. It's been about 25 years ago now, you know, and so it was, yeah, it, it was just that turning point and, yeah. and a big act of surrender, right? We have to get rid of those old beliefs, the old narrative of ourselves. Yeah. And yeah, really put me on this healing path. Lovely. So your book is called Becoming Fierce. What does that, what does that mean? Talk about what becoming fierce is. Yeah, you know, it's I, I love that title and I have to share with you. Uh, it was literally a absolutely serendipitous moment that brought me to writing that book because I was being interviewed a couple years ago for my first book, which is The Spark. Um, igniting your best life. And Karen Curry Parker had me on her show. And at the end of the show, she was asking me at the end of the interview, what do you want to do next? And I said, oh, I think I have another book coming through. I'm writing little scraps of paper on little scraps of paper in my car at stop signs and little ideas are coming through. And we got done with the interview. And she said, um, I want you to know that my partner and I, my business partner and I own a publishing house and we'd like to publish your next book. So that's kind of how that happened. And so the very next day, I found myself on the phone with Michelle Vandepass. And as I told her some of my story and some of my idea for the book, she's like, oh my gosh, Stephanie. She said, you are fierce. You're fierce. And I said, oh my gosh, that's the name of the book, Becoming Fierce. And I woke up about 1.15 that morning and wrote the whole outline. Um, yeah, it just really downloaded and came through. And so fierce to me, to come back to your question, Michael, fierce isn't being aggressive. It's not being in someone's face. It's really that passionate, fiery, powerful energy within us that's to me like showing up as our authentic selves, living full out and being that beautiful, unique expression of who we are in the world. That mm -hmm. to me is becoming fierce. Sounds like energy of the heart. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Self-expression and groundedness. Yeah. So a lot of our learning and a lot of your learning is about transforming our pain and our traumas and uh, our challenges into uh, having a deeper sense of self, of ourself, but also a deeper connection and often that leads to being of service. So maybe talk a little bit about how that evolved for you as a healing professional. Yes, thank you. I, I feel like you know my, my life journey has been around service, you know, whether it was 10 years as a counselor, you know, um, in the education system, working with developmentally uh, disabled people, uh, I just, I feel like I had this whole career and then in the last 17 years, moving into just doing private practice psychotherapy. So it was beautiful to be able to do that on an individual basis or with couples. And I'm a trauma specialist. So I did a lot of that kind of work and what a joy, I mean, to me, one of the biggest joys is being able to be a witness to people's healing, you know? So that's always been something that fed me. And then again, serendipitously, 
um, as, as fate would have it, I was in my office one day and just thinking about, I would love to be on radio again. I had been a guest, um, on, on a woman's radio show here in Colorado. And I thought that is such a beautiful way to reach more people with this message. Um, and literally I was thinking it and three minutes later, not even three minutes later, there's a knock on my office door and in walks a gentleman who says, I'm from the local radio show and I'm just the radio station. And I'm just curious if you'd be interested in doing your own show. And he said, I about came out of my seat. I was so excited. And that really opened the door to these larger and larger mediums that I was able to use um, to help share, you know, these messages of how we can heal and how that is vital on, on the film poster. The words are your period healing period matters, period. And I feel like that's one of the essential messages I've tried to put out with all of my things that, you know, each one of us are one of those gold, one of the golden threads in the tapestry of humanity. Our healing is essential because as we heal, then we really do help ignite those sparks within others. We help raise the vibration. We help raise consciousness. So it does become essential that we all, yeah. yeah. Join in Let's that. talk about trauma because it's a hot topic these days, but uh, often misunderstood. I'm a I'm pretty much a trauma poster child, so uh, it's led me on my own journey as a as a tra somatic trauma healer and and working with groups. But uh, I'm I'm curious about um, you know how you approach because. Um, you know, as we know, trauma is not the thing that happened to you. It's what happened in you and the response to the trauma. And, uh, and that, you know, we have individual, familial, collective, ancestral, geographic, COVID, so many different kinds of trauma. Um, you know, what do you think are the key uh, opportunities, because I consider trauma actually a spiritual path at this point. Mm -hmm. But what's your take on that? And let's let's un unpack what trauma is and how to approach it. Yes, you know, and and I really do want to speak with you about this because I think part of the thing I would love to shift for us too is the paradigm or the the old narrative that we have to suffer in order to grow. Because I think that that's something that, and it's true, right? It can be that match point that wakes something us, wakes something up in us. And we know, you know, that when trauma happens, there's a belief that gets hardwired in our brain. And I, I do EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing with people, as well as now a new, I, I call it EMDR on steroids, um, flash technique that helps really rewire what gets locked physiologically and then as a belief system. And you know, we know the way that our brains work is that we hold on to a belief, let's say that gets, that happens in the original trauma. And then our brains that are always looking for evidence to prove what it already believes starts finding, you know, these different threads that then 
it becomes this memory cluster that's reinforced. Perhaps I'm not safe in the world or I'm not good enough. I, I can't, you know, I'll never be able to be a success or whatever that would be, whatever the trauma was, I don't matter. I'm not important. Or like with my own, I'm not lovable. So I think as we discover, you know, and, and so as we discover what those are, there's different protocols that we can use so that we're not, I mean, whether it's breathing or I love the somatic work, the havening process, you know, touch, there's so many things we can do. And so I, I want to make sure I'm answering your question. Is it? it yeah. Well, go ahead. let's, let's, let's take it from another perspective. So first of all, most people think of trauma as something bad and something that is a disease or a pathology or a uh, something that's broken in me. And my perspective on trauma is that it's an intelligence, that the trauma response is the nervous system's intelligence that's been evolving for hundreds of thousands, millions actually of years and that it's there to protect us. Um, and that the only way to create um, uh, uh, post-traumatic healing is by going to the body. So I've gotten very clear about that through my own journeys, that it's an embodied journey. But uh, first of all, the stigma keeps people from looking at it or uh, trauma, what trauma? I don't have any trauma. I had a perfect childhood, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but we're all we're all traumatized, and of course, yeah. the the symptoms of trauma are this sense of separation, uh, of scarcity, of uh, not enough time. You know, so you know, I'm interested in other ways that you in integrate that into your work of becoming fierce because. Um, you can't get around trauma. You can't run fast enough from fear to get away from it. You can't just keep it pushed down. It's already taking a huge amount of your life energy to be in this hiding of what you said, the I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, I'm broken. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the Woody Allen, I wouldn't belong to a club that would have somebody like me as a member. You know, so, uh, and and again, and you mentioned this, I think that safety, of course, the the neuroception, the always scanning for, is it safe? Is it safe? Am I safe? You know, that takes uh, a lot of creating safe environments for people to feel. And I also personally, I do my work in circles uh, because I feel we were traumatized in relationship and the best way to learn how to uh, self-regulate is to co-regulate in a group of people. So that's kind of my take on it. And I'm wondering okay. how that moves into your, uh, your own work that you have with people to empower people to be their best self. Yeah, beautiful. I love your approach. It just, it sounds so, so beautiful. And, you know, I would say, Michael, that, that one of the things is for people to first identify that they're even experiencing trauma. Like you said, I think what we can do is we can acclimate to higher and higher levels of stress or to trauma that's living within us. And we just push it down. It's like pushing that beach ball down under the water and eventually 
it's going to come up. We're going to see it in our, in our lives. Um, and so I feel like one of the, um, important things is that there's big T trauma. Like we hear about, I had one of my clients was a first responder in the Oklahoma city bombing in the, um, nursery, you know, so he had big T trauma, you know, it was 20 years later and he was still having night sweats and nightmares and wasn't able to maintain relationships. So, you know, that was a very obvious thing. There's also little T trauma, which sometimes we don't realize that's really affecting us. And I'll never forget the woman that I trained with when I went through my EMDR training 17 years ago. And her trauma was literally in eighth grade being surrounded by a circle of kids after she ate lunch and went outside. And it was girls who were her friends and not her friends, but they were teasing her. And the belief that got locked inside of her is I can't trust anyone. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes the guiding filter that we experience our life through. So, you know, sometimes we're aware of how trauma is living within us. It might be somatic. We might have stomach aches, headaches. Um, you know, any, we might, any, what's that? Any tension. Yeah. Yeah. That tension that's held in the body. Chronic tension. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when I'm working with someone, you know, I, I try to approach it. I don't think there's one size that fits all. I'm a very eclectic therapist, I would say. Yeah. And, you know, I, what I usually do is help them, whether it's breath work to start regulating the body because it goes offline so easily and how to get into meditation. How do you soothe the brain? And we know EMDR is such a powerful tool. I always laugh um, seeing an interview with Bessel van der Volk, who, you know, is this amazing trauma researcher and he was like, I don't know how this works. It feels like magic, but he had gone through it so many times. And so to me, I think, I mean, the power is to be able to rewire those beliefs. And so then you have a separation from the incident, from your physiological response to it. And then you start hardwiring. We know that neurons that fire together, wire together. And so these old tapes that have played over and over when I think of the incident or something feels like with emotional reasoning enough like the incident, we get triggered. Well, interestingly enough, my, my fiance, who is a chiropractor and also a high-performance coach, if I notice a trigger within myself, he would say, oh, what a blessing. <laughs> and like you said, you know, it's actually, as we notice those triggers, they do become our blessings. It's our chance to begin to heal. Yeah. And to know that we don't have to do it alone. Right. One of the, I think one of the most difficult things about getting to these, which you talk about in the book, the self-limiting beliefs, is uh, also the implicit uh, experience. So we've got the explicit, which is, yeah, I remember when I had that trauma, you know, my I was 13 and my father, you know, said that he was leaving my mother. You know, that's pretty easy to track back and see. But then there's the traumas that are before three, five, and before that. And they show up differently. They show up like it's happening right now. 
without any memory of anything. Like this is the truth. It's really what's happening now. Those are the harder ones sometimes to get to with people. How do you work with them to rewire those kind of self-limiting beliefs with people? Yeah, you know, what I do with that is I use... I always use bilateral stimulation. I have to say, I love bilateral stimulation because it does relax our bodies and I do a body meditation. So when they're feeling it in their body, I have them go to that place. And instead of wanting to shift it or change it or have it be anything other than what it is, because often we reject those parts of us, you know, it might be putting a hand on that part and breathing into that part and asking that part. I do, I love doing part work as well, where we say, what what does this part need? If this part had a voice or this part, you know, was able to let you know what's going on here. And so the person really learns, they don't, it's, it's not the therapist that's doing the healing or a technique, it's themselves. They know, they have the wisdom to bring healing to that wounded part of themselves. Yeah, I think one of the biggest barriers there, Stephanie, too, is that wanting to be somewhere else, that try that that like what what the Supi said to you, that that efforting and that trying and that uh, if I could only get here or someday I'll be in this place, which is always the trap for denying that place in the body and and really uh, bypassing the real work that needs to be done, the real shadow work. Yes, you know, and I, I'm reminded of Tara Brock's work. Mm, I and her. I love her and, and her acronym RAIN, you know, which is recognize, allow, investigate, and then you're returning to natural presence, which is really that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, Shadow work is something, if we're going to become fierce, that's one of the things I, I talk about in the work, in the book, is the importance of embracing whatever shows up for us. And again, you know, it's like, if, if we're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow, we have no control over that. It's not happening now, but we're having the physiological response as if it is. And it's the same thing when we're triggered by the past and we're ruminating about the past. We don't have any control over that, but we're having the physiological response. We're having the chemical dump that it's happening. So I think in aiding in this healing process, it's bringing ourselves to the present moment, you know, and that's, that's what Tara Brock's talking about. You know, the first thing is to just acknowledge that it's even there that we're feeling and we're having a sensation. We're having a physical physiological response. And then to be with it, to do that gentle investigation. And I always tell my clients, I'm like, the A is the most important part of that acronym to allow, to allow it to be there. You know, I I was kind of a corporate shrink for 30 years. That was, you know, I was an organizational development consultant with a Gestalt background. And um, I used to say, I work with heads on sticks. The only reason they have a body is to get their head to the next meeting. Right. And uh, so many of us cannot feel our body. We're numb and and even more so our emotions. So we think our emotions, which is really not emotions. You know, that's that's feelings. Emotions are always in the body. So 
how do you begin to get people a little more aware of just the most tiniest movement in the body or the scent of an emotion to get people started? Because we're we're a very numb culture. Absolutely. You know, and I and I really do speak of this. I, I was in a seminar at one point, which I my speech was called, my presentation was the 18-inch journey from your head down into your heart. And so honestly, part of what I what I do with folks to just get them feeling is an exercise where they put their hand on their heart to start just feeling into their heart space and to remember. Again, you know, it's like what we hold up in our mind, our mind perceives is happening now. So the beautiful thing is having someone recall, let's say a time when someone was really compassionate towards them. And, and the wonderful Rick Hansen in his book, Buddha's Brain, talks about this exercise. And I've used it for years and years and years and years. I just love this. So you're bringing that sense of like remembering a time when someone was compassionate towards you. What did their eyes look like? How did you receive their message? And you're just feeling into that heart space. And the second step being remembering a time when you were compassionate towards someone else. And so as you start really feeling into that, you really are lighting that all up, not just in your brain, but you can start to feel, even right now I can feel my heart and this, my chest center starting to emanate. It's getting warmer. And then I love the the third place is then to send that compassion. I say, you know, it's like gathering it in your hand and it's like, you're sending it to yourself. So it, it gathers in your hand from your heart and then circles back to you. And then just to marinate on that for a while. I think that the, I mean, those are the first steps back in the day. And this is goodness sakes, 26, 27 years ago. I ran a cognitive behavioral program for seriously mentally ill and worked solely for three years with paranoid schizophrenics. Mm. And so that was one of the things that, that we really worked on was that emotion isn't just zero to a hundred, an expression. And it's not just, okay, I'm sad or I'm mad, you know, sad, mad, happy. It's like, let's, let's really feel in and notice the nuance. And we would do that you know, through using pictures, I'm back in the day of thermometers. And so I want to feel as I'm feeling this, I want to gauge it. How intense is this for me? Where am I feeling it in my body? And just being with it, you know, and Michael, that's one of the reasons I love, love, love the poem um, (laughs) by all of a sudden, of course, it's, it's um, escaping me by Rumi. The guest the guest house. You know what I what's so funny? What kept coming to me is the happy place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it is, it, it becomes a happy place, this guest house, because he talks about how, you know, this being human is a guest house. Every day a new visitor arrives. Sometimes a depression, a meanness, a sadness comes. And this is a horrible paraphrase, but he says, you know, it sweeps our house of all its furniture. So welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows, you know, gathered in your living room, because the, I love the last line is welcome them all, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. That's a good and to me, That's it. You pretty much nailed <laughs> Thank it. You. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. So, you know, that's, that's 
one of those poems that I have it saved on my phone. I think I've had it there for 20 years. I mean, it's, it's as long as I've had a cell phone, I've had that poem saved. And yeah, I, I think that's the way we start to, in that nuanced sense, begin to thaw out. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I had some resistance to the word fierce. And I was saying, why, why am I resisting that, that, um, that word? And I, I, th I think it was Andrew Harvey um, that used the word fierce compassion, and, you know, putting that together. But there's so much othering. There's so much uh, of, in order for me to feel whole and complete, I have to be different than you, or I have to be the same as you, the other person. And that's really a trauma response, that sense of separation. Um, but right now, I've never in my 77 years, have I ever... Um, been felt in a more divisive time and I've been through the Vietnam War and I've been through a, a lot of different things and never have I seen the kind of divisiveness I'm I'm hoping that it's that the truth is coming out because of the devices but divisiveness but um so this word fierce I'd like to um when it comes to um connecting more deeply uh in the and the passion of it and the spiritual part of it. Talk a little bit about, you know, the soft side of fierce. Yeah, I, I think that that's an important piece because when, when just when you said that, I thought about, you know, there, there's a fierce part of me that is fierce devotion. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to me, that's, that's to that daily practice. That's to that touching in with the divine that's when I show up and literally the, the book is downloaded through me. I just showed up at the keyboard. Um, so it's, it's to me also fierce. That's why I love the word fiery because it is that burning in our heart, which is passion, which is if, if you're a parent, I think we know that fierce kind of unconditional love. And to me, it goes back to like that spark. People ask me a lot, like, what is the spark? And the, these two are very aligned because the spark to me is that essence within us. You know, it's, it's what's caught fire within us that is our essential self. And so outside circumstances, no matter what we're faced with, can't blow that out. The water, you know, water can't wet it. It's something that's always there. And sometimes it feels like it gets covered up. And so our work is like, how do we excavate that? How do we excavate that process so that we're really allowing that fierce flame within us to really be on fire, to really ignite? Yeah. And so, it, yeah. Go I was going to say in your book, you talk about losing and regaining uh, the fierceness. And, and I like that because it's not a thing that we hold on to. It's way more emergent, that ability to bring ourselves into a space of presence deep compassion uh, and and connection with other people. Um, but talk about that a little bit, how it goes away and it comes back and how to feed that and nourish that uh, and develop that fierceness. Yeah, I think one of the big things for me is I really believe in a daily practice. Mm -hmm. If we're gonna continue, it's not that we wake up one day and we're like, 
I'm my own best friend. I love myself. And all these things are healed, you know, as we know, it's this lifelong practice. And so I talk about, you know, we have to excavate the spark. We have to cultivate this relationship with ourselves. And so we're, we're not always having the most amazing days. There's sometimes where we do feel stress or we do, as you alluded to, feel that collective heaviness or pressure. And so I think one of the things we do is we keep returning to those things that do help us stay grounded, that do feed that inner fire within us. And so for me, it's the bookends to our day. Those are, that's truly the way that I help keep that because it's okay. You know, one of the things I think that we need to get rid of is this myth that once someone's a thought leader or once they, you know, have a position as a therapist or they're an international speaker, whatever that is, that they have it all figured out and that they've somehow, yeah, you and I both know that's, that's the farthest thing from the truth that we're all in this together. You know, we're all having this experience called life. And so I think it's important to know we can mess up. We can have what the great David Burns, who wrote back in the eighties, you know, feeling good, a psychiatrist at Stanford. I had the honor of, of being with him in a training group. And the one thing I took away from there that really impacted me is he said, you know, we relapse every day. Mm-hmm. We relapse every day. And what he meant is that we are going to have these ups and downs and what's going to help strengthen us through them are these kind of practices that we can rely on and come back to. So for me, I wake up in the morning and I do some kind of exercise. So it might be yoga, it might be a run, it might be an actual workout, a HIIT workout. And then I'm going to go sit on my cushion, you know, in front of my altar and have 30 minutes where I'm really in touch. And, you know, where I, it's just like, that's, I love that time so much. My fiance was making fun of me a couple nights ago because I couldn't do it until nighttime because I had some appointments in the morning and I was just so lit up. I was just so just feeling it through the core of my being. Um, And it can be simple practices, Michael. One of the things I love to do is go and stand in the backyard in the morning when I let the dogs out, regardless of the weather and just look up at the sky. I literally like put my hands up and just soak in. I've just closed my eyes and notice all the sounds of the birds and then soak in the sky. And those, those practices can be so incredibly grounding. And at the end of the day, I love the late, great Wayne Dyer, who said, you know, whatever we're experiencing the last five moments or five minutes, excuse me, of our day is what we're marinating on the next seven, eight, nine hours. Yeah. And so to really practice, what is it that you want to be thinking about before you go to bed? You might have a nighttime meditation practice. You might listen to something that's really soothing. What I love to do is to really bring in that practice of what is the best thing that happened today? Yeah. And to bring that in and really feel it. So I'm noticing, so I'm going to bed and I'm having the physiological response to that thought, again, holding it up in my mind says, oh, this is happening now. How wonderful. And, and the beautiful thing about that is that we, you know, we have to train these primitive brains that are really hardwired just for our survival. And so that's why these negative events are like Velcro. You know, it's like if something negative happens, our brain files it away and says, oh, we have to remember that. So 
If you touch that hot stove, you don't have to touch it again. Your mind says, oh, got that filed. But positive experiences are more like fried eggs on a Teflon pan. We don't need them to survive. So they get purged out of the file cabinet pretty easily. So one of the ways that we can start training like our reticular activating system that notices things in our environment is we can start doing this practice of what was the best thing that happened today and then feeling into it, giving it a couple minutes. So we're really taking it into our cells. And what's interesting is then the next day, you're more likely to keep finding things that really make you feel good that pretty soon you have so many things that you have to choose from because you've now changed the direction of that reticular activating systems focus. Yeah. So true. So true. Not only the practices uh, that we have, but being resource, knowing what our resources are, you know, what is it, my particular resource? Cause there's a lot of, you know, meditation, contemplation, prayer, yoga, there's all kinds oh, yeah. of great practices but some people have resources like, you know, just taking a walk in the woods is a resource or when we get triggered. And the thing about being triggered, I, I've studied with Thomas Hubel for quite a few years. I don't know if you know Thomas's work, uh, German mystic. Oh, being a trauma person, you should know he's probably the only person that's doing large scale trauma integration work and I highly recommend it. Um, but he talks about being a mystic in the marketplace. And I love that. And John O'Donohue was a close friend of mine, used to always talk about us as mystics. We were all mystics. And we think of a mystic as a person who sits in a cave, you know, in the Himalayas and for 20 or 30 years and gets enlightenment. But the idea of a mystic in the marketplace is that every challenge, every difficulty, every, you know, I had a difficult or a hard conversation or something is always an access to this deeper place. If we can stay with that and even review that later on and say, what happened when I got so upset with my boss or my partner, or, you know, what happened in my body? What happened? What emotions were there? You know, what, what was the narrative that was going on? What was I protecting? You know, to really look from that point of view of, you know, because I said, it's like, this is an intelligence. Our nervous system is an intelligence. It's not a problem. It's an intelligence. So if we uh, point that intelligence towards the day-to-day -day things that trigger us, that's how we expand our capacity to not only be more of ourselves, but be more connected with life, the world, nature, all of that. So just want to throw that in the resourcing part, I think is really an important addition to just the practices. Yes. And I, and I love that, you know, and, and as I was speaking of, you know, that just being a nighttime practice right before we go to sleep, I think these daytime practices and what you're talking about, what you're speaking of is so vital because it's also what helps us build that inner muscle. It's what we're able to say, oh, me too. You know, I, I really feel like we're in this yeah. place where now we're, we're moving towards a me too movement being that we're all inclusive, you know, we're all in this together, as I said, and I love one of the practices that I love too for this, for this kind of sense of belonging came from the film, the Moses code. Hmm. If you're familiar with that. No. And, um, 
this film's been out for a while, but Neil Donald Walsh uh-huh. uh, shares on there that one of his daily practices, and it reminded me of this when you were talking about being a marketplace mystic, um, he walks around and the what one of the big things from that movie is the I am, the, the phrase from the Bible, I am that I am. And so this documentary with Michael Bernard Beckwith and all these you know, different people in there speaking are saying it's missing a comma. It should be, I am that comma, I am. And so Neil Donald Walsh's practice is that he goes around and he says, whether I see someone that's a millionaire or a homeless person, I say, I am that, I am. And it is such a powerful practice. After I saw that film, I did that for years because it really gives us that sense of I'm not better or less than we're all in this and think about, I mean, opening the heart of humanity and ourselves as we realize we all have those parts within us. We're all suffering at some point. And not just with people. There's a great song that uh, my friend friend Dwayne Elgin put in uh, an environmental movie that he did. And I, I, I find myself on my walks often singing, I am the river and the river is me. I am the earth and the earth is me. And it's it's a song that he used in the background, but to recognize our con- connection with the greater world, with yeah. the you know, non-human world, I think uh, is so important right now, particularly with climate change and you know, just all the ways we've separated ourselves from the natural world, which uh, is biting us and will continue to bite us until we deepen that connection. What are your thoughts thoughts about that? Oh, I absolutely. I mean, I w- when you said, you know, some people, their resources is just taking a walk, just being in nature. Um, I think that we've gotten so far away from that. And it, it rang for me true because my my partner, that's one of his daily practices. You know, he used to wake up at 5.30 in the morning and go out to this lake that we have close to our home and just lie there in one of the fields and, and look at the stars as a way of really connecting to that sense of self. So I, I absolutely resonate with what you're saying because we do live in this amazing, magical world that's, that's this outside breathing, thriving world. And so to really be in touch with that so that we don't disconnect because you're right, we could look at a tree and say the same thing. I am that, I am. Or we could look at a bird and say, I am that, I am. And so if, if that is me, how am I taking care of that? How am I nurturing that? How am I being absolutely, you know, connected in a way where I am then serving that as myself? So important what you're saying. That's where the rubber meets the road, really, is am I living that? I might have that belief, but am I living that? Am I turning my lights off? Am I recycling? Am I honoring the property? Uh property, I hate that word, the land around me, the trees around me. You know, one of the things that I loved uh, in your book, and probably not something a lot of people noticed, but was your daughter, Acacia, and uh, 
your your uh, your lesson from your daughter. And I had a lot of lessons from my daughter. So I'd love it if you just talk about that because that was very profound. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Yes, you know, so I have an adult daughter. I have two adult daughters, nine years apart. And Acacia now at 34, um, we have gone through, well, and so is this, I have to ask you, is this the, the story when she was four years old or is this this? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to make sure because I shared two really important stories about her. So, oh my gosh. So this, I, I love this story, Michael. Thank you for letting me share this because this was one of those, again, life-changing moments that changed my view of this incredible cosmos that we're living in. Um, so this was back on my daughter, Acacia, this is 30 years ago when she was four years old and I was a single mom. And um, I had, at the time, my, my aunt was 45, my aunt Gwen, and she'd had breast cancer for five years and never done anything about it. Um, when she was diagnosed, she wanted to go holistically. And so mud baths and some tinctures, and unfortunately it was, you know, it just spread throughout her entire body. Mm. And the day I got the call, this was back in the day before cell phones. I was actually in the tub using this huge portaphone speaking with my mother. And my mom said, you know, they opened Gwen up for this exploratory surgery and she was entirely filled with cancer. And they're, they're giving her just a few months to live. And I put down the phone and I'm just, sobbing in the bathroom and little Acacia hears me and toodles in and, and sits down on the edge of the tub. And I think it's important to note too, you know, Acacia is the Greek word for immortality um, and the tree of life. And it was just the, the name that came to me for her. I mean, I just knew that that was her name. And uh, so it's very interesting because she sat down on that tub and she was just like this little Buddha. She all of a sudden, it was almost like she was ageless because she was very articulate. Um, and she was like, mommy, what's wrong? And I said, oh, honey, you know, and I was always very truthful to her. I said, mommy's just sad. I just don't want any, anyone to die. And she just looks at me and shakes her head. And she's like, mommy, we never die. And then I'm thinking, oh gosh, she's thinking, even though we didn't go to church or talk about God, I thought, oh, she's thinking heaven. So I said, oh, you mean when we go to heaven? And again, she looks at me and shakes her head and she's like, mom, there's no heaven. She <laughs> said, when I was a light in the sky with God, um, and then she looks at me and says, do you remember your other mother, Dorothy? Now, this is so wild and that she phrased it this way because my grandmother, Dorothy, died when I was 13. Mm -hmm. We were very, very close. And it was my grandfather married a year later. You know, he was married to Grandma Seal. That's the only person Acacia knew. Um, we had, I didn't have pictures of my grandmother around. We didn't talk about her. And that's the way she chose to phrase it. Do you remember your other mother, Dorothy? And she said, her light was up in the sky with my light. And so God put some of her light in me and I got to come down and be your daughter. Amazing. Yeah. 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 That's a, so much more to talk about, but that really is just 
takes it to another level, you know, that that all knowing that we that we have. We talk about the inner GPS in your book and lots of, of these areas, but just to know that all of our ancestors are in us anyway. And that that source energy that really moves through us and that a four-year-old can come up and just tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Here's there it is. Here's how it is, mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wake up a little. <laughs> you know, and and the the thing that was also beautiful about that, Michael, was the fact that my grandfather, who had been married to my grandma Dorothy, you know, since they were 19 years old, he would always say as Acacia was growing up, and we didn't tell him because that might have disturbed him. I, I did call my mother right after that and say, Oh my gosh, mom, you would not believe it's my mom's mom. And we cried together. Um, my grandfather would always say, Acacia is the most like your grandmother of any of the grandkids. Oh. Which I found so interesting because I'm the most like, <laughs> I would have said I am most like that grandmother. She was the person who was, you know, always, always talking to the stranger or the person on the street. Or, you know, if my grandmother, if someone needed a cake, she would be baking them a birthday cake or, you know, very gregarious and outgoing. And my daughter, Acacia, is much more, uh, she's very introverted. She's an artist. And so she holds her feelings pretty close. And it was like my grandfather could feel it within her, right? So it wasn't something that she was acting out or words that she spoke. You know, again, it's that spark essence. within us, that essence that he could feel. So I want to just uh, plug your book a little bit, Becoming Fierce. And uh, you can get it on Amazon or any bookstore, local bookstore. It's always nice to buy books at a local bookstore. And then you have a movie called When Sparks Ignite. And maybe you can tell us just a little bit about the movie and how people can watch it. It's a very inspiring uh, movie with lots of inspiring people in it. Thank you. Thank you. So the, the movie Wood Sparks Ignite, um, it, it really is. It's, it's a lot about what you and I have spoken about. It's those difficult and challenging times that we face that can then become the match point that ignite that spark within us that become our gift to the world. And so that was the premise. And again, you know, as the divine speaks to us, I got that download after an evening meditation several years ago. And it was like, you're going to do this film and you know, some of the most brilliant minds and serving hearts on the planet. Let's do, you know, this event where you come together with these people. And they were people that I'd had on my radio show and podcast. Um, and the thing that was magical, I have to tell you, was, you know, honestly, when I began this, I had 67 cents in my savings account. Mm. I didn't have money to fund a film. And so there was this serendipitous thing that just kept happening. I mean, talk about when the divine gets in line and things just continued to manifest. And so I was speaking with um, Jacob Lieberman and told him this idea for people that know the wonderful Jacob Lieberman. And I said, I'm going down to Santa Fe. And he said, oh, well then get a hold of Larry and Barbie Dossie and get a hold of George and Sedina Capanelli and um, tell them about your idea about this film. Because part of the idea was 
really bringing people together. And instead of having these presenters that make tens of thousands of dollars to come speak for 45 minutes and then they leave, nobody speaks to each other. Nobody knows anything to come together and really have this group that we spend and we spent days together as a group, you know, the 12, there was 12 presenters that came together, including myself. And so we literally, I mean, we ate together, we meditated together, we prayed together, we made music, we danced to music. I mean, it was this beautiful alchemy that was created. And we did, um, I did individual interviews with people. And then the second day we sat around a round table and we called it lights of the round table <laughs> and shared things that were truly on people's hearts and minds. Um, that truly it's like being a fly on the wall and getting to see the interior of people that we see very polished or presenting or writing amazing books. And to go back to the beginning of that, when I went to Santa Fe, I had breakfast with George and Sedina Capanelli, who are these wonderful film and television producers and do all this wonderful ageless living on PBS. And they were like, okay, well, not only do we love this idea, we want to be a part of it. And here's the contact for our award-winning film crew. You know, it was just like everything just fell into place. And the same thing when I went to dinner with Larry and Barbie Dossie. I mean, Larry reached across the table and held onto my hand and he just said, Stephanie, how can I refuse? You know, and that, you know, you're you're part of this, you know, of us passing the torch, those of us who have been doing this work for so long. Um, and how important this message is. And so all of these people showed up without being paid a fee. You know, they showed up, they believed in the purpose of this film. And I feel like you really see that in the film and through that beautiful alchemy that was created the third day we presented in front of a live audience. We had about 150 people there. And so you just see how these sparks ignited within us. And then it is like those concentric circles that come out from us and how we ignite those sparks in one another. So it was just this beautiful event. And the ironic part is it was pre-COVID and yet the messages in there, you know, how do we take the long view? You know, how do we create change within ourselves and in our world? How do we raise our consciousness that now these are more important than ever? Those were the points in the film. Yeah, it's brilliant, brilliant coming together. Um, just a lot of heart and and depth, and um, which is really, you know, Stephanie, it's just so nice to be with you because you're so close to your heart, you know, and it just it just resonates through you. And I, I'm really uh, love that you took the time to be on We Earth Radio. And how can people get a copy of the film or see the film? Yeah, so the film has been playing and is still available on the More You channel. That's the word more and then just a U, capital U. And that's on Plex Network. And it's a free network. And so, you know, we wanted to get it out to as many people as possible. Again, just to, to share that message. And for people to really feel that within their hearts that, you know, your healing matters. So, mm. Well, it's just lovely being with you and for all of our listeners. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and much love to you. Mm, much love to you too. Thank you so much, Michael. This has just been a joy. Thank you, Stephanie. Take care. <laughs>